0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. Today I'm hosting, this is Alan Wyma. Today we have Adi Eingar on the panel. Hello. And our guest, Zach Daniel from Ash Framework. Or is it Ash HQ? I get confused because we have two different names, right?
1: Yeah, Ash Ash Framework. Ash HQ is just the name of the website. But uh, yeah, uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Yeah, so we had you on about around a year ago, right? And that kind of blew my mind about what you could do with it. You made some very bold claims. And we were discussing before the show, I was actually playing around with it for an internal project. I thought it was pretty interesting there's still some stuff that's I'm still trying to wrap my head around because it's definitely, what do you call it? It's like a whole different way of thinking if you've only been doing like straight Ecto and Phoenix stuff. But you are building upon those when you use uh,
1: Ash, right? Yeah. So, you know, it kind of depends, like, you know, how we build on or integrate with different tools, like, but we absolutely try not to reinvent wheels. So, you know, we build on top of Ecto, you can integrate with Phoenix, we use Absinthe for Ash GraphQL, Like, so yeah, we use a lot of these other tools. And you're 100% right that it is, it's effectively like an entirely different paradigm for building applications that focuses on, like, I would say, it's quite different from your standard way of building Elixir applications, which is right now a lot of handwritten code, a lot of like manually connecting of a bunch of disparate pieces and tools and libraries and things like that. And Ash is kind of the opposite of that, which is like we're trying to build like an integrated solution. So yeah, it's, it's it can be quite different. And often that's why like to be successful using Ash, you want to like lean into the community and like talk to people who have been building things. And we switched to Elixir forums recently, which is a big thing. So there's a lot more out there. It's more accessible instead of we were on Discord before and it was hard to find things you were looking for, that sort of thing. So the community can be pretty important in that regard, especially leading into 3.0, where we're going to do a big documentation refresh and, and focus on like on-ramps for beginners. And right now we don't really have that. So
0: yeah. But we didn't actually explain what is Ash. So I know we did an episode a while ago, but maybe good to give a quick elevator pitch because I'm not sure how to pitch it. It's like, I would say my my interpretation would be like Ash is... I don't know if I... I guess I can, you can't call it a framework. It is what it's called, right? So it's a framework that lets you to build apps in a way that you can more focus on your individual apps characteristics rather than kind of copying and pasting and redoing typical things you do in all of your apps is that that's a wordy way to say what how you would say it, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean I have a we're actually working on how to even explain what it is because it's something that like the core team on the project, the are the, the people who have been using it for a long time, we all have like a sort of intuitive understanding of the things that we don't feel like doing. And a lot of that is part of the reason that we use Ash and, and also the things that we would have to figure out. If we tried to build something without Ash, and it can be difficult to explain what it is, but I would say, like, in terms of sort of like elevator pitch or explaining, you know, what the purpose of Ash is, not necessarily technically how you use it or like from a technical standpoint, what it is, but like, if you want to build an application today. There's like a wide array of functionality that you have to build into any application, like authentication, authorization, filtering, sorting, pagination, calculated and aggregated data, validations, notifications, like all these different things. And Ash provides tools for all of those things that are integrated, which as you put it earlier, like lets you focus on your differentiator, what makes your application special instead of like all of this table stakes stuff. And without something like Ash, you have like two options on that front you can essentially handwrite a bunch of logic yourself which is error prone takes a lot of time or you can compose a bunch of disparate tools together often those are built like sort of targeting the lowest common denominator of functionality like so for example they're built to work directly against ecto queries or ecto schemas which means that they can't leverage your like higher level domain concepts like the operations that you've defined in your contexts or the domain specific sort of calculations or computations that you have and so you end up duplicating all of that into something that this other thing can understand if, you can even, if it can even leverage those things at all. So that's, I'd say like part one of the point of Ash is like, let me focus on the important bits. You provide me a bunch of integrated solutions that if I write my code in, in this way, then the framework can paginate it. The framework can, you know, authorize access to it, all that sort of stuff. But we also, there's certain things that if you extend this pattern even further are practically impossible to get without a declarative application framework. So the first one is interesting because those are technically things that are over surmountable yourself. Like it's like, yes, I could use a framework, but I can figure out how to hook all these tools up and I can figure out how to write pagination. And, you know, you accept a lot of risk of new bugs, but there's also things that you, that are just not reasonable to build into an application that you've built using sort of standard imperative functional composition tools like Phoenix Context, for example. And a good example, I guess, I'll just pick one, is field policies. So we have a thing called, we have this whole policy authorization system that are declarative policies that can be compiled down into queries so for instance if you have like a policy that states that like I can only see this if I'm the owner of this record for example or like owner ID is is me right Ash will automatically filter the results so that you only are presented with things that you can see and that's actually really important especially when building things like apis to prevent to prevent like an end user being able to figure out like oh I got a 400. Or I got a 404, that means there's nothing there. I got a 403, I was forbidden. That means there is something there with that value that I was searching for. And so basically that's, that's what's called, that's the sort of root behavior of like an enumeration attack where a user can, somebody can start spamming your API with filtered requests to, to discover information about what's there because sometimes they get a 403, meaning the data exists, sometimes you get a 404. And we've taken that one step further to what's called field policies. So field policies are like conditional access to individual fields on a resource, like calculated fields or just attributes. Like So if you have something like, let's just say you have like a restricted attribute that you know some users can see and some can't see, what is even a good example? Like the, the role that a user has. You can only see that if you are that user. If you're a different user, you can't see what they role is. And the way that field policy works is they can also be compiled down into expressions that we can then put into queries. And so if you hit, let's say you hit an API endpoint, and you say, give me the users where role equals admin, for example, we will replace that role equals admin with, we'll place that reference to role with a reference to an expression that is if you are that user then that user's role otherwise nil n- n- like a null value and so you can actually have like filterable sortable endpoints on conditionally authorized fields, and everything that you can't see will just appear to be nil and this is actually a really common attack vector for uh, API endpoints that support filtering is yes i'm not I'm only conditionally allowed to see that field, but I can filter on that field and therefore get back all of the records that match some condition. And so typically what happens is you cannot support filtering on fields that are not like globally visible, like where they're conditional to the record. Or you have to bake all of your authorization logic into your filtering tool or whatever. And that's the kind of thing that like you don't have to... Users, Most users don't even realize that we do that. Most users, they write a field policy for conditional access that says, you can only see this under these conditions. And then they're protected from essentially every kind of methodology of accessing that field from calculated, from sorting and filtering, or from just including it in the response. So that's the kind of thing where that's not just a limit. Table stakes, I guess, is what I mean. That's the sort of thing where we're doing things that, because we know everything about your application, because you've built it using our tools, we can do things that are unreasonable for you to do yourself. That's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah. It's not really an elevator pitch. It's like no, a definitely. Stair- that, stairwell pitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the hard part about Ash is like, how do you explain it in an elevator? Like you said, it's really difficult to explain, but you've gotten some major you know, in, investment in terms of like, you're basically you're not doing this full-time, right? You're doing it for most of your time or is it full-time you're working on Ash?
1: Well, yeah. So full-time I'm working either on Ash or with Ash. So I work for an agency, Alembic, who we've, we're we doing, we basically have all of the, the subject matter experts for Ash now at this point, I don't to say all of them, but they very early on saw the value of the project. And so they brought me on to work on it with the majority of my time is spent on the open source software itself, which is good for them because they're using it on pretty much all of their other projects or most of their other projects. And so they get improvements, they get support, all that sort of thing. But I also will then join projects and or, you know, help contract to for people who are building things with Ash to help make sure that things are idiomatic and support them more specifically. And a lot of times that means like, adding features that they need, you know, that kind of thing. So I do. I pretty much spend all of my time in or around Ash at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of work, right? Because it's such a huge project. But like you said, it's, it's all-encompassing. So it's either you're either all-in or you can't, you can't like do parts of your app using Ash, right? You can't kind of rip it apart and certain things or certain parts. You, you can do that, yeah. You can.
1: So yeah, because the main thing, like part of the way Ash is designed is that like we consider so you build your application layer using ash tools and you can use that application layer in code or over an api or using live view or or controllers or whatever it is you want right like so we provide all those interfaces and so i would i think it's actually quite easy to integrate to just build some part of your application with ash and then call into it like you would call a phoenix context or or any other thing really, and then there's even good migrating migration stories. It's not like there's no like flip a switch and you've migrated. You know, it, it takes time and effort, and you have to think about it. But Ash resources are all Ecto schemas automatically, so you can even like you can keep your code that was operating on an Ecto schema and writing Ecto queries, keep that exactly how it was, but just replace it with an Ash resource that has attributes that map to the same. You know, and basically you can migrate you with that strategy to where you progressively add Ash resources as you can and replace you know features and things like that and then eventually replace your Ecto code with Ash-specific code.
0: Because you have that authorization piece, which I'm, it sounds pretty interesting. I like the certain the field level, right? Which I think is something I may actually be looking at for a project. And uh, we've already built everything using context and everything else. So I am interested to see if I could use that in one of my projects and if, if that works out well then slowly start converting maybe some other pieces. Because everything else I mean I'm using GraphQL with absinthe obviously, Ecto of course, like basically all the pieces, all the traditional pieces.
1: Yeah, it would I think field policies, I'd have to look into how you could how you could do that. Because the the basic issue is like the point, like what makes field policies especially powerful is you're using Ash query tools to access that field. And so we'll scrub it. And there's likely ways that you could get some of the benefit for it, but I'm not sure if it'd be like worth the squeeze to start there. It's, It's hard to say. But one of the things that's interesting about Ash resources is like they, so you have like an Ecto schema and it's, we have schema, we have, whatever they call them, like uh, schema list schema or whatever they, like, you know, not pointing Embedded at a database. Schema. Embedded schema. Yeah, and with Ash, it's like we, you can build a resource that just is backed by like a function that returns the data that should show up in that resource. So you don't have to have like a data layer, so to speak. And so you can use that also as a way to get some of the like Ash interface goodies where like you provide a query and then you can like use some tools to turn that into an Ecto query, but honestly, like there's a lot of work to do to make that more fluid. So depending on like trying to piecemeal adopt individual parts of Ash resource functionality can be difficult, but switching parts of your app to use Ash resources is easier. It's maybe a hard distinction to to draw, but okay,
0: yeah, because I mean it, it is quite a bit of work to change all the stuff that we've created, and I have lots of other people involved, but I know that it's something that. For sure, lots of the clients that are using that app they they're interested in how can we make sure that certain people see only certain things and not others, et etc, and also doing certain actions and all that kind of stuff super huge,
2: yeah, I think looking at the documentation it's it's really my first time exposure to ash I've heard of it obviously for a while but never got a chance to look at look at it somehow I was in the impression that's a Phoenix replacement and it's like completely not which is great to see uh, just looking at it I think I think it might be honestly best to start by writing an app from scratch just to internalize the concept of ash itself like how it works where can you find it to be useful and once you have inter- internalized that I think it might be easier for you to plug it into an already existing app, right, to know how it would fit in because it's very, very modular. I think one thing I'm just looking at the first documentation, I'm like, okay, as a quick win, quickest win for me, it's like it provides a nice data layer around Ets, which is a pain to deal with. (laughs) <laughs> so yep. like it's like an Ecto like interface around it's and that that's a win. I and mean, That's like a quick thing can use it for anyway. But yeah, it's it's so vast. I think it'd be even hard for you to. It's even like I'm a very experienced developer and like reading through documentation, it's hard for me to kind of like completely instantiate what it is and how it should be used. I think it's best to just like put it to practice for, for a side project and yep. yeah, understand for yourself.
1: I completely agree. And one of the things that's interesting, like because you're right about how big of a project it is. It's just wildly big. And one of the earliest decisions. I made working on Ash is I saw a lot of frameworks and tools that were very good tools, but they kept everything nice and tight and simple by throwing a bunch of things out. Like they weren't ambitious enough to say, you know what? No, we're just going to figure out all of it. Like, of course not, right? Because that's insane, right? <laughs> Who would do that? Where they're like, no, we're just going to we're going to figure out a thing that that will let you make all of the pieces that you need to make a, a modern application. And because they're right, which is that you'll have to, as the pe- person developing that tool, you're going to be responsible for the like the spider web of all of these things having to work together to make sense and that what that means is like every little piece of functionality that gets added has to work with like the Cartesian product of like every other piece of functionality that was added. And that's hard enough when you're building like an application, let alone when you're building a framework that is meant to let other people build applications. And so a lot of times, like I made the decision early on that that I wasn't going to do, I was never going to say, that's going to be too hard for us to figure out how to do, or that's going to be too difficult for us to maintain, and therefore we won't do it. I'm like, no, whatever the right answer is, even if it requires like effectively a superhuman level of of brain investment to figure out how to plug all these things in. Whatever that is, that's what we're going to do. And so as a result of that, it's like Ash encompasses... So much stuff, and is and you know it. That's why the elevator pitch is difficult to to make too, because it's like it's. And I've I've likened it to modules in the past. People are like, "Give me like an elevator pitch for using Ash," and I'm like, "Well, give me an elevator pitch for using Elixir modules." Like like a module is like a general purpose thing that you can do anything with. So it's like, how do you pitch it, right? How do how do I pitch like a playground? How do, or like a bunch of how do I pitch Legos? You know that kind of thing. Yeah, it's up to you what you can do with it, really.
2: Yeah. At least in my head, the analogy that's coming up—I might be off—the you know the the plugs, not elixir plug, but like the actual physical plugs that you plug in. Like Phoenix is a plug, Ecto is a plug. This is like a plug board, like an you know the the power strip that connects yeah. all of them together and provides a more standardized way to to keep that connection. You're off outsourcing the and interface of connection between those two. They're not in the interface and implementation. So yeah. You, yeah. And as these libraries get complex, I guess that's more work for you guys, right? Like, a, I don't know, like, ETS, I'm sure you have written an Ecto ETS adapter or something like that in the background for you know the resources <laughs> to work the way they do. It's a non-trivial amount of work. <laughs> it's, it's We're getting it for free and you guys yeah. get to maintain it. So yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, for, for ETS specifically, we actually... So Ash has a middle query layer we just use our own we don't have an ets ecto because I, I don't see. want to figure that out anyway it would be way too hard. <laughs> okay um, makes sense. <laughs> yeah but i but you're right that like the we deal with all of the complexities there and i think like an interesting way to think about it too is like a good analogy because okay it's a declarative system what that means is there's all these configuration options and twiddles and knobs and you know little declarative so you can write imperative, you can add fun, your own functional code, but you put it in specific spots. You configure it in like, a, so if you have an action, like to create a thing and you need to like call out to an external API to get the stuff, it's like, just like plug it. You know, in in you know standard plug and, and connection, it's like you have to drop it in a specific place, and then we'll call your function when we want to call your function. But ultimately, it's declarative, and so it's it reads like instructions. And the best way to think about it is it's is it's what you would have to tell me if like you were a a product person or or somebody you know specking out what work needed to get done on your system it's all of the information i would need to write the code that does the thing that you want right so like if you want to be able to create one of these things you need to do these things in this order you need to accept these things you need to do all this sort of stuff and then you need to do this i need a special piece of functionality that calls out to an external api and so it's like basically it, it's me trying to automate myself out of a job in a way of like Give me all the instructions that you would give me, and here's the code I would have written. And you don't have to write that code anymore. You just put in the instructions and, I guess, get the code for free to some degree. So it's a little bit of a strange concept, I guess.
2: I think it's really cool. I think it's very, I think it's, it, it goes, follows the very concept that made Ruby on Rails popular in the first place, right? The productivity, how uh, once you, follow the convention. As long as you follow the convention, things are productive. You know, obviously there's a point after which it may or may not last, but I think it, yeah, it takes that to yeah, a higher level. Like, I mean, yeah, you can spin up a Phoenix project right now, but everyone's like, oh, should I use Gen Auth or should I use uh, what Uber Auth or whatever, right? Like, I mean, it makes all of, adopting all of that, doing all of that stuff a lot easier, yeah. Yeah,
1: and what I think is interesting is like the idea that you can provide a framework that, app, that users can build their application within the bounds of this framework and get a bunch of benefits from doing that is a good idea. And just because people have done it wrong time and time again, doesn't mean that the idea is wrong. It just means that it's very hard to get right. I mean, or it could mean the idea is wrong, but I don't think it does. And I think that what I think is especially interesting is like we are not playing on, we're not building on quicksand in a a way that I think Rails effectively is, right? So it lives in, it's in Ruby, it's in an object-oriented language with, you know, mutable state, with dynamic dispatch, with all of these different things that make it extremely difficult to understand what's happening with your application. It doesn't have an explicit compile step, all these, all these different things, right? That, that we don't have to deal with. And so we don't build our, we don't build our thing that kind of works how Rails does, where it gives you all these guys, we, we can't build it to be as, I guess, bad. Like, I don't want to crap on Rails. Like, you know, it's, it's not like bad technology. But it's not what yeah. I, I don't want to use it. So yeah. elixir is the, the secret sauce there.
2: Agreed. I think the rails analogy. What was meant to be, I guess, like the, the philosophy, right, that made it popular. It was it did, like, was a revolutionized that kind of philosophy. It was, it was a revolutionary framework, right? So, and again, nothing is perfect. Everything will break at some point. We'll have different flaws and stuff. But I was just like appreciating the idea of a framework like this in the Elixir mm-hmm. community, uh, for sure. Do you know if anything like this exists in other languages that like ties all the major tools together and provides a framework to deal with things?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I know there's, you know, I think Django is one of the things we've been most like, into, which is, I don't really know if they're tying a bunch of different tools together. And I mean, in a lot of ways, the fact that we tie a bunch of tools together is, I mean, sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Like with Ash JSON API, we just write Phoenix controllers. I mean, we yeah. write plugs, actually. They're not even Phoenix controllers. And with But with Ash GraphQL, we use Absinthe. And with Ash Postgres, it builds Ecto queries, but with the ETS data layer, it doesn't. So it, I'm not, it's kind of interesting. I think most people liken us to Django because the way you work in Django is you, you do this sort of definition step of the, like of your resources and your, I guess maybe your objects. I, I haven't used Django in a long time. And then you get things like an admin UI and, and you can generate an API. Like I looked at it, you know, in the recent past at the docs and I was like, yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Cause of course I'm looking with a critical eye, but we have been, I think that's the thing most people draw a lot of corollary comparisons to. I think actually on that front, what Ash is most like is it's most like a no-code platform. And, but it's like, and I was actually building a no-code platform for like a year and a half before I basically dropped that product. Like I invest a lot of time and money into it and ultimately decided that it w- wasn't a good idea. And what I realized is it's like, I want to apply those same principles, but be more, be developer focused, like build a, f- where, where you can escape it at any point and do whatever custom magic stuff you need to do. And so that was a lot of the impetus for me, like like, I had Ash at the time. I was using Ash to build a no code platform. And I was like, you know what? I think Ash itself is the end game, actually. And so, in a lot of ways, you can think of Ash as like the highest code, low code platform that exists, where like we don't, we're not afraid of writing code, but we want you to not have to write certain code. And we want to write certain code for you, for your safety and for performance and all that sort of stuff.
2: I think a cool thing for Ash to be, to go in more in the no code kind of category would also, I'm not sure if you have done anything along the lines of delivery that's Ash specific. Maybe even, I know, I know Fly came up with the Lambda-like solution recently, right? I forgot what it's called, but maybe something like, what was it called? Flame. Flame, right. So maybe something along those lines could make Ash, maybe like, spinning up an ash project means like going on flame and just copying and pasting a code and boom it's up i don't know maybe that's like too much
1: yeah i mean it's it's hard to say i think where we're going to go i think the i haven't really talked much about the plans to do this but the the real kind of holy grail for ash is that eventually there's going to be a desktop application that because the code is declarative it can be both written and read into a structure that would allow you to get like a GUI editor. And so basically what you'll have is you'll have like maybe an editor extension or an app or something that runs that looks at your code. And if you want to add an attribute to a resource, you click like a little plus button in the UI and add it in the field. If you want to add a policy and then it'll have all these utilities like test my policies and all this sort of stuff that, and I think that's probably our big end game is basically like a rich set of higher level tools that are Ash aware. Because Ash applications are so uniform in this way that you can basically like get your sort of no code goodness if you want it. And otherwise you can just edit the code directly. Like you have both options, which I think is pretty powerful that be neat. There's a lot of things that are very difficult to represent in like in just code without like a, a sort of assistant visual panel, you know, like uh, related files, relationships, and all these different things where it's like if you had like a little I don't want to say copilot because everybody's calling everything copilot these days, but if you had like a little assistive window, maybe even just a VS Code extension that could like visualize the resource and and allow you to navigate more fluidly and modify it in a way that like shows you all of the options that you have and everything that you can do and describes. The resource for you, you get, it, you can get like a pretty serious amount of help and like removing of the mental overhead.
2: It reminds me a bit of not drawing any comparison, but just saying reminds me a little bit of the Drupal UI mm. interface. You can like quickly click a button and add a endpoint, and uh, yeah, I, I know it's got its deficiencies with like databases and stuff, but yeah, it's very cool, like kind of
1: like a CMS right now.
0: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But since we talked about you know about a year ago, like what has there been any kind of major updates or what what's going on with Ash?
1: Yeah, so we're we're going to be releasing three soon. It's been taking a bit longer than expected, which I guess on its own is not unexpected. Of course, software, you know, software taking longer than people thought, who, who would have expected. But what we're basically doing, you know, we've, I mean, we've done tons since the 2.0 release. Like we've released, we've released tons of new extensions and packages like Ash authentication. We have Ash state machine, Ash Oban. We have a tool called reactor, which is like a, it's a dynamic saga, a dynamic graph-based saga runner. We have Ash double entry, Ash money, like just so many things that, that are going out there. Like we have like actually a, a double entry accounting system that you can like basically drop into your application and use. So if you need to deal with like uh, internal representations of money or or transfers of value or anything like that, and that stuff is very much like we're you know going to keep adding stuff like that. We've added, you know, there's a lot of like a lot of I, there's a lot of things I could list, but I probably won't because honestly, you know, if, unless you're familiar, if you're familiar enough with Ash to know why these are good things, then you'll already be excited about them. And if you don't know anything about Ash, then you know, I'm just gonna be saying where it's at. At the listeners, so but like let me, let me pick a couple highlights out. I have a list here. Like uh, open API spec was a was a big one. Like if you're using Ash JSON API, we released an update that will automatically generate an open API specification for the API that we build for you. And so basically, you just like did a mix dot update and got like a full Swagger UI for your API, which is pretty pretty nice thing. Uh, bulk creates was something that we added recently, and that's the first. That was the bulk operations and atomics are the what we're calling them. Bulk operations and atomics are the major. Thing that we're going to get in before 3.0 releases. And so bulk creates was doable before, but we need certain th- features to finish up bulk updates and destroys, which are basically given a query or a list of inputs, update or destroy or create, you know, with, with that information. And what's important there is like, we, ne- we need to make it, Simultaneously generic across data layers, but leveraging each data layer, each data layer's strong points to implement, right? So if you bulk, a good example is if you bulk create in the Ash Postgres data layer, it will turn, it will batch it and turn it into a multiple set of insert into instead of like not, it's not going to be like one insert statement per thing. But if you were to bulk insert into the Ets data layer, there is no like bulk insert equivalent that will do what we want. So it just creates each one and bulk updates are going to be a huge one there too, where What's, and I don't, I think this is where we're getting into the realm of things that have never been done before, which is pretty exciting for me as somebody like it, you know, trying to innovate is one of the things that I really value is what I really want to spend my time on. And bulk actions are one of those where there have been plenty of tools that will let you like insert a bunch of things into your database. That's not, that's not new by any stretch of the mind. You know, it's been around since databases have been around, but our bulk operations will honor the validations, functional hooks, policies and rules on the resource, but will compile them into directly into statements in the query. So you will get basically the benefit of like declarative application actions, regular like and then you can just bulk it. You can just stream into it a bunch of things and that will turn it into an insert into your policies will be added as like conditions. Added into the insert, so like the insert will fail if one of if the user's not allowed to do the thing, or the update will fail if they're not allowed to make that update. But you don't have to pay this cost of like of doing it one at a time. You can still give me a query, give me, a, and even that's a good example. You can say take this read action and do this update action on them, and if all the policies of the read action will get applied at the read and funneled, and and that'll create a query that is only the things you can see, and then an update action that updates only the things you're allowed to update with only the updates you're allowed to make. And what that means is basically like you get these, you get the, you get, I don't want to say big data, but you, know, you can do these like bulk imports and these bulk operations safely, following the rules of your resources and with not discarding performance. So that's what's going to be in before 3.0 happens. And I'm working on what's called Atomics right now, which is basically like taking your resource and validation rules and turning those into expressions Like, you know, if you have a thing that adds plus one to a field, you know, it's like, it needs to be done atomically, as in we need an expression that is like that field plus one, and then we need to tell the data layer about it. And that's already in, but what we need is the ability to convert like You can add explicit atomics, say set score equals score plus one, but we need to then ask all of the bits and bobs on your thing. How do I do, how, how can I do your behavior atomically? So then you as a developer can say, here's the Elixir version, here's the atomic version to make your resources support atomics. It's all very heady, but it you know you won't have to think about it too much as the as an Ash user. You'll just be able to bulk do any operation in your system without paying a penalty. And then from there, that's the features that we need to get for 3.0 to happen. But then from there, it's all going to switch to DX, to Uh, developer experience, documentation, cookbooks, videos, better error messages, better, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's basically like the stuff that we've been putting off because to me, I need this this functionality to exist to make sure that any future features we add are like aware of all like it's. I don't want to build on the wrong thing by not having these features part of the system. So after that, we'll move on to to DX, and I'm pretty excited about that because that's our biggest complaint right now. Is like either like you know I can't figure out what this error means, or the documentation for this was unclear, or that kind of thing. It's quite amazing,
0: like all the different modules you can just add on. And is it simple to create things like these? I mean, obviously, do you actually have documentation on how to create these kind of things, or do we should we if we want to do something similar, do we need to? Like crack open what is currently out there to see how we can add this on to a possibility. Um,
1: yeah, so the there is documentation on how to make these. It's not a lot of documentation on how to make these, um, but it's it's actually built with a a tool that we abstracted out of Ash called Spark. So Spark is the D, is the DSL tool. It's the declarative programming tool that backs all of this. And so when you write an extension, you actually write a Spark extension, not Ash extension. And a Spark extension basically gets the, all of these capabilities of like modifying what the DSL gets generated and functionally, it's all these different things. And then you can add to the DSL. You can extend the DSL. And so doing that is actually quite easy. I'm going to say quite easy, but like, you know, if, if you're looking... If you're at the point where you're writing your own extensions, it should be relatively easy for you to do. And that's typically the end game for most Ash users. And that's where you really start to see it all sort of fit together is when you start writing your own extensions. It's pretty easy. Most applications I have that are end up with, you know, three or four of their own custom extensions that will modify the resource in some way or add functionality or hooks or behaviors or whatever. What are some examples of those is like we have we wrote a for one client we wrote a materialized fields extension that basically adds an attribute and a calculation and will automatically write the calculation to the attribute. So like whenever certain things change, it will like persist the value. So for expensive calculations, you know, you you can, and that's all transparent to the resource. Like it just sees that there's a field called that field name. It doesn't know that it's being periodically refreshed in the background and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's pretty straightforward. To, to write your own extensions. And that's when you're like, oh, wow, this is the power of this pattern is, is really presented.
0: Yeah, the structure is quite different than what most people would be used to. You know, it's not MVC it's you got like a registry, you got resources, you have different pieces, right? Like, was this, is this actually following like a, a pattern that was out there? Or was this something that just kind of came to you as you were kind of trying to create this system, the, the ash?
1: It doesn't follow any specific pattern. I mean, it, it's I guess you would call it it's resource oriented which is that like you know you define your application as a set of resources and then you connect those resources together and add configuration to those resources the closest thing would be like model driven does it like, or like, you know, if you hear like, you know, fat models, like people are like, have fat models and thin controllers. And we're like, have one resource and no controllers. Like the controllers should be generated from the resource. I don't want controllers. I don't want like JSON views or presenters. I don't want any of that crap. Like I want to have the resource and I want all that stuff to just happen. And so that's the, that is how it works. Like, you don't, when you use AshJSON API, you just to add like a new endpoint is literally one line of code, say like, okay, make an update action and call this thing. And that, does all of it for you. Don't have to like write a controller or a context function or any other thing.
0: Yeah, overall this is quite clear to me because you know we, you and I had a long discussion before and I played around a little bit. So Adi, I mean, you have anything for him? Because I'm I'm out. I'm spent. I'm sold.
2: <laughs> no, I think this this looks this looks really cool. I I haven't used this at all, so I I'm sure I have questions, but I I don't think I understand Ash enough to properly frame them right now. But yeah, excited to use this on a side project i'll probably f- put a fun time during these ho- holidays just to try it out there's a lot of there's a lot of good extensions i i see no band extension for ash too we'll definitely give that a try like yeah it feels like a good win for you know people trying to build applications in a productive way uh in elixir like this but paper trail graphql yeah there's there's a double entry bookkeeping system there's like there's a lot of stuff here it's uh yeah, it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, we, I'm submitting a talk, or I have submitted a talk, which I don't want to necessarily. I don't want to like assume it's going to get approved, <laughs> but you know, uh, I would, I would, I'd like to think it's going to get approved for ElixirConf EU, and I forget the exact title, but it's basically, I think it's something like build Your bring your applications to life with Ash Oban and Ash State Machine, and that pattern. Those are relatively newer tools, but have proven extremely effective for for building applications where uh, you have like anything that's, any automation in the background. It's not just like a stateless request response type system, you know, and we've been building things with that uh, for a while now. And it's it's really quite nice. Like with what Ash Oban provides is basically like, it doesn't abstract away the need to use Obon, regular Obon jobs for all sorts of different things. Like that's not the point. But when you have a certain class of thing, um, that the resource could do for you, you can save like tons of effort. Like a good example is like, let's say you have, whenever something gets moved into a pending state, you want to make some external API call and then change the state accordingly, right? With, with Ash Oban, that's like, you just a couple lines of code, you say like trigger, you give it a name, you say where state equals pending, you say, check every this amount of like, you give it a cron job, and then you say, and then call this update action. So you just define the update action that you want to do, and you can just hook it up to say, okay, do that whenever something meets these conditions. And that is like tons of time-saving code, and, you know, it does a lot of smart things, of course, under the hood for you. And then when you couple that with Ash State Machine, where the Ash State Machine defines the valid state transitions and what actions can move from what state to another, you can build these really complicated, I mean, complicated is kind of a bad word, but you can build any you know complex flows with the, with the combination of those two things, where Ash Oban is monitoring and triggering, and Ash State Machine defines all of your valid states and transitions, and then you get like a you get a flow chart, like it will build you a state diagram of like, here's all the ways that it can happen. And a new thing that I'm really excited about, I'm going to have ready before the talk, if I if it gets approved, is Ash Paper Trail. One of our users, Robert Graff, has been doing lots of good work on Ash Paper Trail to like enrich all the things that it can do, including he's added this, what's going to get merged soon, full diff tracking, where any, like if you have embedded attributes or if you have anything, anything like that, you're going to get like a, every time you change something, you get like a list of unchanged attributes, what it was changed What attributes that were changed, what they were changed from and to, all the way like recursively down the structure. Which like I'm not suggesting everybody needs that, but if you do, that's a very useful thing. But what we're actually going to do is have a tool that is Ash State Machine and Ash Paper Trail. So we can we already build you a state diagram of what your state machine can do, but we're gonna build you a flow chart of for an existing record of what decisions it took like so it's going to basically look back through the states and say okay it started in this state and then it called this action which branched it to this state and then so you'll be able to go into something like ash admin or like our admin background and pull up like let's say you have some flow you click into it to view it and then you'll be like give me the diagram for like the life cycle diagram for what states it went through and why it arrived at so if you have like a payment and that payment has failed you'll see like well first we called this we called this and then Then we transition to the failed state because the user didn't have enough balance or something. That's pretty sick. Yeah,
2: Yeah. that's really awesome. So, like, you get all of that, a nice history UI for free for a record, as, as long as you configure things from it. That's really cool. I guess I have like one question about these things, like how configurable all of these components are. Say, for example, I want to put my paper trailer in a separate database. And OBAN is a separate database, just to like manage load, manage domains better, like how easy does, does Ash assume any of that, or that can be still be configured separately at the application as in the you know paper trail or OBAN layer itself?
1: Yeah. So for Ash paper trail, we don't make any assumptions about where the paper trail lives because you actually give us like like a, a set it basically is this its own other resource. The paper trail is its own other resource that is, oh, some, cool. is a sort of copy of the original thing with and so you can put that in like Amnesia or BigQuery or, well, we don't have a BigQuery data layer, but if we did. Yeah. And even if we don't, you can still put it in BigQuery. Like you just have to write the actions that, that do that. And with Oban, we don't care much about how Oban works. I think we do make some assumptions that it's the same database I mean we don't make those assumptions it's just if they are then you're you would want them to be the same database because you get transactional guarantees like if right. they have after this action happens then trigger an oban job but if it's not then you just won't you won't get that guarantee but yeah. we don't assume that it is the case Gotcha either.
2: very cool And speaking of transactional stuff how do you and it looks like paper @Trail, attribute trail is like all built by you guys right not like an Oban like library that you're using external library Correct Okay how do you like guarantee the paper trail the transactional safety in that case. Like, you know, what if does it get persisted after and what if, what if it get, what if it doesn't get persisted and if it's persisted before but the data doesn't get the transaction
1: isn't completed totally so ash actions they all have a life cycle that includes hooks for before the transaction opens before the action is happens but in the transaction you know after the transaction or after the action after the transaction all these sorts of things and so extensions basically will put their behavior somewhere in those in those that life cycle nice yeah and ash paper trail will go after the action, but in the same database transaction, and there's a, that's another place where Ash does like smart things for you that you, honestly a lot of especially beginners would never even realize that they have to do. This is usually people get burned by this early. You're using, so say, you're using Phoenix, just regular Phoenix and Ecto, and then you have like a context function that emits a pub sub event, right? Like hey, the, you know, a post was created, and then like okay, a little bit later down the road, you write a thing that lets users create multiple posts at once but you want it to be transactional. So you put it all in a transaction and then you say, okay, create each post and you call your context function called create post. And weirdly, you start getting uh, not found errors in your other live views. And you're like, what's going on? And it's because the live view got the pub sub notification before the transaction finished. And the thing that it tried to look up then didn't exist. And that's because functions, you you can only compose functions in one way. You can call a function from another function. I can't say... Call this context function, but don't send any pub sub notifications until the transaction's over. That's not a thing that you can do. But that is actually how it works with Ash. We have a pub sub notifier built in, and we have the concept of notifiers. Notifiers are things that hook into a resource action, but are always always sent when the overarching transaction has completed. And so if you call nested actions from another action, we gather up all the notifications, wait till the transaction's been committed, and then call the notifiers for each resource with the notifications that that happen. And so with things like PubSub, and you, you basically like, you don't have to worry about the way that the transactions work. And then you get to decide like, okay, you mentioned like, what guarantees do I have? It's like, well, what guarantees do you need? Do you need to make sure that it happens out of the transaction? Or do you need to make sure that it happens at most once? That hmm. would be a notifier. At most once is a notifier. At least once is an after action hook that is in the transaction. So you can kind of, Easily make that determination. Very
2: cool.
0: Yeah. Is there anything we miss about Ash since the last time we talked, or, or today? Sounds like uh, two pros coming. You said you don't know quite when, but soon, as they always say, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, soon. Yeah, I mean it's it's proven a bit of a, of a challenge. There's a couple of things that. I are overcomable. I am actively overcoming them, but they have required a lot more brain power than I expected. Like we need the ability to raise errors from a query. Like it's com- it's sort of complicated. Like we have to to put a validation in an insert statement. You have to raise an error if the validation passes, and then you have to like catch that properly from the data layer, and so all these different things you have to do. And that's that's been interesting. And then, but yeah, it'll be soon. And another one we really want to do is is generators. We have some generators now. We have a live view generator. We have a resource generator in in pull request, but so you can generate a live view from a resource. But what we really need is we want you know mix new that lets you pick and choose between all the things you want to install. And I really want the experience of that to be first class and it's going to be there's going to be a lot of things you can do with it like the idea is you can say like mix install and give it an extension and that will like add to your app the things that you need for that to happen and so you don't have to know up front what bits you want you can decide like you can realize later oh I need GraphQL and it'll mix add all the bits for you and that sort of thing and so we're yeah we're, that's going to be a big fo- focus in 3.0 as well which I think people are pretty excited about especially starting a new ash application is like where do I start <laughs> you know that's awesome well, I'm going to
0: start the transitions over to picks. If there's anything else, just let me know. But we're it's a good spot. Adi, not picks. so did it's I. Picks. But that's why I let you guys go first because I'm a gentleman and I'm thinking, uh, <laughs> Adi, I know you got something for me.
2: I did not, but I mean, I, I quickly thought of one. I have been well. Whenever I get, I'm getting a chance. I pre-ordered the Avatar game, and I played it for a couple hours, and it's actually pretty good. So yeah, uh, people who are fan of the lore or just like first-person open-world games, the world is incredibly beautiful. Very, I think it's one of the games that makes you want to interact with the world. It's pretty interesting. Like gathering resources is not straightforward. There's like little caveats here and there. But yeah, it's a good game. It's not an, It's a crazy. It's not. It's not Spider-Man 2, But it's a games. That's my pick for the day.
1: Okay, I got a pick. I've been reading a series of books recently. I don't know if there's a name for the series itself, but the first one is called Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. They are this, like, galaxy spanning sci-fi like and they the time scale is and the the subject matter is so very like heady and interesting and like uh original it's you know it's kind of like the opposite of like a it's kind of like the opposite of like a sci-fi where it's all about like one alien attack or something like that it's like yeah it's it's no it's spread all over the galaxy there's all of this like interesting stuff but it's not like it's not like oh there's a bunch of I don't know how do I even explain it? It's not like there's thousands of aliens. And it's, it's it's sort of complicated. It's like realistically what might happen in the future, but thousands of years from now, and it's it's quite interesting. Uh, I would definitely suggest if you like a, if you like sci-fi, check it out.
0: Yeah, for me, I'm actually gonna pick a, kind of a TV show. I've been watching a show called Superbro. Have you guys heard of this one before? It's yeah, yeah, it's like I don't know if these guys are brothers or what, but a couple of Australians. It's on Netflix right now. They have this weird show and I think they play like, yeah, Adi's just like confused. Yeah, it's really weird. Like there's a lot of weirdness to it. It's my kind of show. It's a little bit weird. (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. There's lots of swearing, so if you're not into swearing, I definitely don't don't hang out on that one. But yeah, there's they kind of get in some kooky adventures, but it's actually quite interesting. It's very uh, quick, like uh, quick uh, episodes, like 15 minutes or something like that. But I think I caught a couple of their episodes on uh, Facebook Reels when I was uh, browsing through it, and then um, I haven't reached the clips that I found on there. But I think it's it's what it is. But yeah, there's some it's it's interesting. So if you if you like this kind of humor, that's kind of like goofy and. Hijinks and some definitely adult humor. uh, I think you should check it
1: out. I absolutely will. Like, I'm going to watch it after I get off of. This call because it <laughs> oh, very, I'm, I'm
0: yeah. glad I could affect your life in a positive way.
1: Hopefully, it's positive. <laughs> yeah,
0: Zach, it's good to have you on again, and it's awesome to see you to keep going with it. It's really tough for me to see anybody working so long on some on some project because I cannot do it myself. So it's just tough seeing greatness, you know. And maybe someday I'll, I'll be able to do something the same. I could be able to stick with the same stuff for a while. It's not easy, right? So I'm happy that you keep working on it, and yeah, and I'm looking forward to you know your 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 talk coming up if they get selected. Maybe I'll help out there for that.
1: Well, thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. It was great talking to both of you.